Thank you. We're flying to Hobart to visit Richard Flanagan at home. It's a busy Friday and the various logistical hustle and bustle of squeezing in a day trip is a bit tricky. But it's Richard Flanagan, literary legend, Australia's most recent Booker Prize winner. And Tasmania is central to his work. His publisher is even referring to his latest book, Question 7, as a love song to his island home. So speaking to him on home turf feels especially meaningful. We stop for pastries on our way from the airport and walk the last 15 minutes or so to his house, working up a sweat from the surprisingly warm Hobart sun. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? He's put witches' hats out on the street to make it easier for us to find a park outside his house, and we scoop them up and carry them in on arrival. Hello, mate. Nice to see you. How are you doing? Good to see you, Richard. Hi, Clara. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you, Richard. Thanks for having us. So your flight was actually on time. Yeah, against the odds. Do, do you want a cup of tea first or a cup of coffee? I'm definitely From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. Almost any time you see a publicity photograph of Richard Flanagan, he's scowling. It makes him look like an imposing presence. This is a man who writes serious, award-winning books, and that heavy brow looks like it's crinkled with displeasure. The reality is very different. Richard Flanagan frowns when he's thinking. He's a man that worries about getting it right, and he's a man that worries away at big ideas. But he's also unfailingly generous with that thoughtfulness, and unfailingly generous with his home, it turns out. Our pastries are added to a massive pile that's already waiting on the table when we arrive. Uh, look, I've just realised something. I'm going to get everyone a glass of water. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, Amazing. Yeah, Thank you. Thanks, Richard. It's an odd book to talk about this because uh, it's sort of personal and, um, and normally you can be glib, but suddenly it's not really a question about your book but about your life. So it's taken me a while to know how to respond uh, quickly and adroitly. We admire the view of the mountain from above the kitchen sink, the lovingly tended garden, the wood stove making the whole place toasty warm, and we make our way into the living room. The couches are super comfortable, and at all sides, floor to ceiling, are the most stunning bookcases. Enviable, gorgeous bookcases, packed with delights. I might kick off with the bookshelves, actually, because you've got the beautiful passage about your dad visiting you and looking at your bookshelves, which, you know, we're here in the room. One day my father visited me and he noticed my bookcases. Do you need all these books, he asked. Doesn't the library have them? I really love that description. And I love how much this book is a return to your dad. It's many things in this book, but one of the things is uh, the love letter to your parents. Oh, that's very true. Yeah, it, it is a homage to my parents. And I guess I, I wanted to hold them close. And, uh, and the only way I had to do it was with words. The, the passage about the bookcases, it goes to the heart, I think, of 
trying to recapture this world that I feel has entirely lost now, as though some vast revolution came along and destroyed it all. But he had very little interest in possessions and he had a great passion for the written word. But he saw something vulgar about accumulation and possession and I've always felt a strange subterranean shame ever since about my books. I guess during COVID, I began to think a lot about what it is to live and um, why we live and to what end. And I think these questions began to really absorb so many people when you see it now reflected in all sorts of things. And it's uh, happening globally from the, the great resignation to the life flat movement in China to people abandoning one life in cities for the idea of another life um, outside of them. And everything is animated by this question, what, what is it to live? And I don't know why, but this made me think a lot about my early life and a world which I think has largely vanished now, a material world and with it a, a spiritual world. And uh, thinking on this, I was thinking about Nabokov's speak memory because the whole setup with that is he's describing a world that existed before the Russian Revolution and the only way he can touch and hold it is with words. And, and of course, it's very clear in that, that, that he can't even return to that country, far less to that time. But in a sense, we've had an equally devastating revolution, except it's silent and invisible to us. And there's been these extraordinary changes uh, uh, wrought to the natural world and also to the human world. And we pretend that it was a natural progression, but I think it was actually a very violent rupture. And in trying to understand that and describe it, I returned to my childhood and um, increasingly began to think about my parents and, and how I grew up in this very strange, what appears a strange world now, this tiny little mining town, which was a little blip in this great still largely untouched wilderness of rainforest on the west coast of Tasmania. And uh, the more I thought about that too, it, it had always struck me as the strangest coincidence or fact that, that I only really exist because of the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima because uh, my father was a slave labourer in Japan at the time. He was only about 80 miles from Hiroshima when the bomb went off. And without that bomb and the subsequent bomb on Nagasaki, all those tens of thousands of dead, my father would have died. He was pretty close to, to death at the time. And I wouldn't exist. And I slowly began to think about uh, the way we're created by chance events and how those chance events in turn have their own history. I wanted to write the book as a sort of daisy chain of events and I wanted to place my life as being one in which was created by stories and in turn leads to this story in the form of a book. I hadn't read the thing before about the influence of Tasmania on H.G. Wells for War of the Worlds. Yeah. It's not the only significant Wells link in this book. In fact, it's a, in some ways it's an incidental one. But can you describe to me why is Wells such an important figure for you? Well, I... I I'd long known 
that um, Wells was inspired to write War of the Worlds because of the terrible story of the, the fate of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people. And War of the Worlds really is the, just the representation in what was then called a scientific romance of an imperial force whose motives are entirely obscure, who come and bring great violence and damage in their process of conquering Britain. I was always very taken with that, that science fiction, the great Earth story of science fiction, actually arises out of a, a correct perception of what Britain had done with its imperial mission to a place like Tasmania. So one of the great imperial writers actually wrote a book that is a, a parable for what people here had suffered. But then the connections between H.G. Wells and, you know, certainly my story here uh, don't end there because he, he wrote another book a decade or two later in which he invented the idea of the atomic bomb. And um, he wrote that book after a young woman called Rebecca West had fallen in love with him and he with her. She was then 18 years old and he's middle-aged. And although he was an inveterate womaniser, something about her passion terrified him. Something about the fact that it wasn't only about the prospect of sex frightened him so much. He fled to his mistress's chalet in Switzerland and wrote a book that was a story of unbridled destruction, of a fire that could consume the world. And the mechanism that would ensure that he called the atomic bomb, which he described in great detail and which was founded in recent discoveries about uh, radium. And this book was um, dismissed by the Times Literary Supplement as porridge and wasn't regarded as one of his memorable <laughs> great works and rapidly vanished. But for some people, uh, this description of this weapon was so compelling they returned to it again and again. Winston Churchill was fascinated by it. And so too was a uh, Hungarian Jewish scientist called Leo Szilard. And uh, it was because of Wells's description of an atomic bomb that in 1933, he came up with the idea of a nuclear chain reaction, which is the, the basis from which the atomic bomb springs. And so it's, it's often said, quoting Auden, that poetry makes nothing happen. And yet it's also true to say that a novel destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki and remade our world into the shape we had today. And also because of that, my father lived. And um, I'm here talking to you here today, Michael, and um, whoever's listening to this is listening to it. You mentioned Nabokov before. He memorably said that a question is insubordination in its purest form. Are you trying to be insubordinate in the questions you're asking here? Is this you trying to shake things up to make sense of the world? No, I, I, um, I pursued my fancies as I found them and I wish to hold a past that was precious to me in the present and going into the future. And I wanted to say certain things that I wasn't sure I would get the chance to say ever again. 
I had um, an unfortunate episode where I, I was given a, um, a prognosis that wasn't hopeful for my health. And I, I thought I only had a short time and there were things that mattered to me that I wished to understand and I had to get them down quickly. And in consequence, I wanted a style and a form and a technique that could say many, many things in a small space that I could write in a short time. And I thought that I would organise the book around an idea of lightness. And I began taking things out, so I would write things, but I would take more and more things out. And then I would take them out before I'd even written them. I'd conceive of them. And what I discovered was the, the more I took out, strangely, the more there was on the page, that the more existed and the more compelling it seemed to me to become. And it allowed me to make great leaps. And I think it's because the one thing I've really learnt over decades of writing is to trust the reader and allow the reader to invent the book and the great spaces between the fragments that you find on the page. It's incredibly effective, but it also has a sense of personal cost in there. There is a sense of grief. You know, there's, a, there's one section two-thirds of the way into the book where you begin my mother and father and you break off and then there's a new section and you try again. That for you, the telling of this, the need to get the words out, you're generous enough to share those false starts with your reader, those moments where you have to pause a bit and try again. I guess I was always fearful as a writer. I always sought to persuade the reader with another image, another tweak of the story, of character, something to persuade the reader to, to keep their eye to the end of the paragraph, to turn the page. I, I never felt a reader owed me anything. You know, if they've opened the book, you have to give them every reason to get just to the bottom of the first page. But I didn't feel fear this time. There were things I wanted to write and to write them in a way that would matter to the reader. They had to be as truthful as possible. And to be as truthful as possible, I had to find a very simple and clear language. So that passage you refer to is about how my, I felt my parents observed the rules of this world and, and rendered unto the world the things that were the world. But they kept one thing in reserve. They never pawned their souls to the world. And they believed in an idea of love, which really we're told is an illusion. But they practiced it, that idea of love, with kindness and goodness to, to others. And over time, that illusion became their hard-won truth. And only now do I see um, the immense price they paid, but also the beauty of that. And I realised that I, I'd once had the arrogance of thinking they were naive, and now I could see that the naivety was mine alone. Coming up after the break, Richard shares his memories of first imagining himself as a writer and reveals the essay that inspired him to think about time differently in his work. We'll be right back. Did you know you can support the artists you love and receive a tax deduction for donations over $2 through the Australian Cultural Fund? 
Last year, the Australian Cultural Fund facilitated over $11 million of donations to artists across the country. You can make a real difference to the work of Australian artists this end of financial year by donating through the Australian Cultural Fund. For more information, visit australianculturalfund.org.au. Hi, I'm Alison Crogan, Arts Editor for The Saturday Paper. Schwartz Media has launched a new weekly arts and culture newsletter, The Arts, featuring cultural criticism, profiles and provocations from the writers behind The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. The Arts will be delivered to your inbox every Tuesday. Sign up now at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. In its combination of genres and approaches, bits of fiction and memoir side by side, Richard Flanagan's latest book, Question 7, is a bit of a departure. It's certainly his most personal book yet. It's a book that takes in the sweep of 20th century history and its tragedies, from nuclear annihilation to the massacre of Indigenous Tasmanians. But much of its power comes from its intimacy, from the ways he pays tribute to beloved late family members and the disappearing world of his own past. You say in the book that it was at the age of four, despite not even being able to write, at that point you decided you wanted to be a writer, you know, that you had that clarity of purpose from the age of four. What did you know about why being a writer was what you wanted? You say clarity of purpose, could have equally been folly of purpose and vanity of purpose because there was no evidence that I could, well, I couldn't even write words, you know. And I used to make little books where I'd, I'd, I'd draw pictures of words and sentences and paragraphs and then my mother would transcribe the stories I told her and put it on the back and she would staple the pages together and bind them with black electrical tape. And they would be posted off from this little mining town to my big sister, who was at Teachers College in Launceston, which loomed in my mind as fascinating as Shanghai or as extraordinary as New York. And really what I was doing with those books was, it wasn't really about the story. It was trying to smuggle a message of love to my sister that I loved her and um, we missed her and she wasn't forgotten. I, I think I saw writing as serving that larger purpose. My father's parents were illiterates, my grandparents were illiterates, and I think he understood the power of the written word, the way that in those 26 abstract symbols could be liberation as it had been for him, but equally without it could be oppression as it was for them. He said to me that words were the first beautiful thing that he ever came across. He grew up in a very poor Bush Hamlet, his father was a railway ganger, and he read a lot of poetry and it meant a great deal to him. But for him, the written word was beauty, which was the highest form of truth. So I think that was very formative for me. And my mother was an inveterate storyteller and the house was crowded and I was the fifth of six children and I was under the table and there's just people spilling in and out of the house. Cousins, aunts, uncles, friends. And there were endless stories. And, and in Tasmania at the time, people didn't divine the world through aesthetics or philosophy or religion or politics. They divined it only through story and the stories were circular. They traversed back and forth in time. They were fragmented and they were digressive. And yet, they remained with you like a, a seed out of a pharaoh's tomb that you could plant 
3,000 years later and might grow into a tree of exotic and unknown fruit. And all of that, to me, led to an idea that the most extraordinary thing you could be, the thing that could express all this wonder most perfectly, most joyfully, was to be a writer. Your account in the book, speaking to your dad on the phone the day you finished writing Narrow Road to the Deep North and saying it's done, and him dying later that day, and then the living sea of waking dreams, in part reckons with that business of letting go of a mother and the nature of what it is to be a child whose mother is dying. But those two novels both act as these kind of beautiful testaments to your relationship with your parents. And it's so lovely to see them back on the page here as a kind of reckoning with the kind of writer you've become as well. Were they big readers of yours before they died? I don't think my dad ever read anything. He never read any book I wrote. My mum, I think, read some. Um, that never worried me. You know, their, their concerns were that you were good to people. My mum got excited about the booker and bet her entire pension on it, which greatly distressed the family because I was long-listed, then short-listed, but it was very clear to all of us that this had been some error and that uh, <laughs> I was going to be found out. And um, so, uh, you know, my sisters had to go and see her and say, look, it's wonderful, but he's not going to win, you know, so don't do this, but she did it and uh, she was strangely proven right. You have written two novels and a book of non-fiction since you wrote The Narrow Road to the Deep North. But in many ways, at least in terms of the inciting incident, the kind of spirit of this book, it kind of arrives in the world almost feeling like a rejoiner to that award-winning work of fiction. That you, you know, you've told this story that you're father's presence is there on every page in the novel. How hard did it feel to remove the barriers between him and your reader this time around? There's a sort of uh, a vanity we have now that we should know everything about another person and um, it seems very destructive to me. There's so much I don't know about my parents but there's much I don't need to know. What people give to you is um, what you have, and it's finding meaning in that and seeking to understand that that matters, you know. I, I think everyone has a public life, a private life and a secret life, and, and the secret life deserves enormous respect, and so too the private life. I, I guess what I was trying to present with them was also the world that had created them, which here is a very particular world here in Tasmania. They're very much the product both of a, a society that did understand it committed a genocide and a society that was a totalitarian country for the first quarter of its modern history and in which most people are the issue of a slave labour system. Either that or of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people or a, or a mash-up of those two things. I think one of the great differences between Tasmania and Australia, and as we've seen with the voice, you cannot look at that voice vote and think that people understand that we were a conquered country and we are the issue of the invaded and the invaders. And until we understand 
what that means. I don't think we can really progress as a nation, but clearly most people don't understand that. But I think in Tasmania it's a little different in that it was always understood here there was a black war, that the black war was terrible and the Aboriginal people fought as patriots, but they lost. There were also great lies. There was a great silence. There was the lie that black people had vanished, which was simply untrue. But nevertheless, it is a different story than what mainland Australia told itself for a long time, and it shaped people differently. What has that meant for you as a writer? What is it to be a Tasmanian writer rather than an Australian one? You and Kafka both. <laughs> yeah, well, you're referring to a, an essay I did a, some years ago where I said that um, my favourite top ten Tasmanian writers and Kafka was number one. I don't think there is a Tasmanian writer. There's just writers and you get given the clay you have and you seek to do what you can with it. But if you do your job properly, as Kafka certainly did, then I read him in Tasmania a century later and all I discover is a reflection of myself and my world because he spoke so acutely and accurately of what it is to be human. It is in trying to find some truth about your own world that hopefully you speak to, to all worlds. I mean, that is the great joy of and, and solace of literature. You know, you read um, a 19th century novel, you read a 15th century essay, and you discover something that speaks to you as though it was written here and now. And, and yet these cultures and societies and um, their conceits, their vanities, their prejudices so utterly distant and removed from ours, but because they've done their job properly, we discover in them that we're not alone. I, I always feel that um, it's always put on writers to justify literature, but the, the very fact that in your worst thoughts, in your greatest hopes, in, in your love, in your hate, you discover in books that you're not alone is the only justification literature needs. We don't live in the present alone. We live in the past and we live in the future. Our very language restricts us in perceiving this. I, I wrote an essay that, that you kindly published in The Monthly, which is in part about an essay I was sent by a young Yolnu woman about the use of a fourth tense in Yolnu where we have past, present, future. They have one where you're making a fish trap today, but you're also making it with other people a thousand years ago and a thousand years into the future. And this idea of this tense um, so staggered me because it suggests a completely different relationship with the people around you, with, with the actual natural world around you. And it took me back to sitting under that kitchen table as a, a little boy hearing these grand circular tales that went back and forth in time as though there was no time. And I think the novel was invented as a, in Europe in accordance with the European mentality, with the idea of time as a great railway line of thought stopping at all stations of human progress. But it doesn't make sense here. We come from a different place. We, we are that issue of the invaders and the invaded. We were indigenised as much as we were colonised. We are an expression of a culture that 65,000 years ago, and we're also an expression of this 
extraordinary land we live in. And we're not European, we're something else. And we need to look at our own stories much more closely and much more honestly if we are to go on and make something better of this place and of ourselves. Richard Flanagan's latest book, Question 7, is out now. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we go, and in lieu of reading recommendations this week, a moment of pure joy to share with you. Our wonderful founding producer and Schwartz's head of audio, Sarah McVie and her partner Jack, have just welcomed their first child, Frida McLean, to the world. She is gorgeous and we couldn't be more thrilled for them. And it means one more listener for Read This, which is excellent news. Hooray, Frida, we love you already. Richard Flanagan has written 12 books and you can find them all at your favourite independent bookstore. Or, if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, head to the Read This reading room, apple.co slash readthis. There's a link in our show notes. That's it for this week's show. As always, rate, review and share. It really helps. Next week on Read This, I sit down with Gabrielle Zevin, author of the fabulous summer read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. She shares with us the truth about literary failure. Before, any time I walked into a bookstore, I was just like, this place smells great. Here are all the things I might read. And it feels like you're among friends. And then after you publish your first book and it fails, you walk into a bookstore and it seems like a completely different place. It all seems black and white and like the other books that are the bestsellers that are piled up on the table are mocking you. And the store doesn't even smell as good anymore, you know? Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 